you take a seat. Uh, we're thinking uh, this evening together about God's mercy, and we're thinking about it in Psalm 51. So uh, do grab a Bible. If you need a Bible, if you haven't got a Bible in front of you, it will really help you to have one that you can uh, look at to check that what I'm saying is what the Bible says. If you need one, you'll, uh, there's a big box of them at the back, and I'm sure Joe will happily bring you one uh, if you need one. Uh, Psalm 51. If you're new with us, by the way, we're really glad to have you this evening. Do say hello. Uh, come say hello. Stick around afterwards for refreshments downstairs. Uh, if you're roughly in the sort of 20s and 30s bracket, they are um, enjoying some uh, relaxed time together downstairs in the living room a little bit later on. Uh, cheese and ham toasties, I think, are on the menu. I think I convinced someone this morning that we were eating croque monsieur, but um, cheese and ham toasties, right? It's sort of similar, isn't it? Um, so do stick around. But if you are new, head to our website. You'll see the word hello on the homepage. Click on that, and there'll be a form to fill in just to give us a few details so that we can stay in touch with you. We would love to be able to do that. Okay, Psalm 51. We're breaking out of, if you like, a series which we've only just picked up again in 2 Samuel. Last week, we looked at David's fall, really, King David's catastrophic sin in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Uh, but it seems uh, a good idea to, to look at the prayer that David prayed as he reflected on that sin. And that's what we find here in Psalm 51. You look at the, the heading at the top, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take, me, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. 
Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray together for God's help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, as we open your word, recognizing that this is your word, your words to us, we pray that you would help us, teach us what real repentance looks like, and give us the kind of heart that we see here in this psalm. In Jesus' name, amen. Is there any way back for a man like King David? Some of us will say, if we're honest, no. No, there isn't, or no, there shouldn't be. And it's true, isn't it? What he did really was terrible. We saw that last week. He took another man's wife, got her pregnant, and then killed the husband to cover it up, and all using his royal power and influence. A terrible abuse of power. In, in today's, what some people call cancel culture, for David, there really would be no way back. And we may agree with that. We may think, well, God should really throw him into hell for what he did. But the problem with that, as we saw last week, is that David is a lot like us. He's a lot more like us than we might like to believe. We may not have done exactly what David did, but we find the seeds of his sin growing in our hearts as well. When the Lord Jesus teaches on God's law in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, for example, that all we need to do to commit adultery, like David did, is to lust after someone else. All we need to become a murderer, as David effectively became, is to hate someone else. In that sense, we're all King David. We all deserve to be condemned. Which meant that, of course, last week's passage was very dark. But it closed, didn't it, right at the end with a glimmer of light. We heard David finally own up to his sin, yes, after being confronted by Nathan and not before, but he did. He finally admitted what he'd done. And we heard God amazingly, in what we thought was probably the biggest shock of the whole story, respond to David's repentance with forgiveness, the language of putting away David's sin. So this evening, we're going to think together about what repentance really looks like. If God freely forgives people who repent, even really terrible people who have done terrible things who repent, we need to know, don't we, what is real repentance? And I think that's what we get here in Psalm 51. It's the repentance that David has in his heart as he reflects on what he's done. You see the heading there? That heading is part of the original there. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. This is the prayer of a truly repentant heart. And we're going to walk through it in four stages. What does real repentance look like? like? Here's the first thing. First, real repentance appeals to mercy. It appeals to mercy. Have a look at verse 1 with me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Now notice what David doesn't appeal to or rely upon as he prays here. He doesn't appeal, of course, to his own merit. And given what we saw him do last week, we know that he can't. Nor, though, is he trusting here in the psalm in a a sort of form of magic words. 
You might have noticed that uh, Jeremy Clarkson is in trouble at the moment for writing a, a nasty column about Meghan Markle. And what happens uh, so often in these cases is that the celebrity, whoever it is, tries to find a form of words which will persuade the public to forgive them. And so we get these sort of long, groveling apology statements. Sometimes they come with an accompanying video, whatever it is. And the, the video, the, the statement, they've often got all the kind of buzzwords, the talk of submitting themselves to a process of education or doing some very careful listening or whatever it is, right? If only they can find the magic words, maybe the public will forgive them. And people pour over these statements to see if it really satisfies the checklist. And of course, Christians can fall into the same way of thinking when it comes to God. You think, well, look, what I've done is so bad, the only way that God is ever going to forgive me is if I can say this exactly right. If I use exactly the right form of words, like a sort of secret password, as though God is there with his own checklist, and if we get any part of it wrong, we're cancelled. So we need to be clear that what's happening here in Psalm 51 is not a sort of set of magic words. It's not about that. It's about God's mercy. David isn't trusting in his own rhetoric. He trusts in God's mercy. Have mercy on me. Don't give me what I deserve. Spare me because of who you are. We started our service, didn't we, with that wonderful, that famous description of God's heart. It does come all the way through the Bible. You'll see it more and more as you look. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. When Moses wanted to see the glory of God, God showed him his goodness. He proclaimed his goodness to him, and God's goodness consisted here in his graciousness and mercy, his abundant love. Mercy is not something foreign to God. It is, if we can put it this way, his native tongue. It emerges from the center of his being. Kindness and compassion flow easily out of his heart to repentant sinners. And just think of the picture that Jesus uses to express it in the parable of the prodigal son. There's, remember in the parable, the younger son. Remember how he tells his father that he wishes his dad were dead so that he can take his father's wealth. He takes his father's money. He spends it on prostitutes. And when the boy's life has completely fallen apart, he's been abandoned by everybody. He spent every last pound or whatever the currency was of his father's money. And he turns for home. And when the father sees the broken boy dragging himself over the horizon towards him, what does the father do? He runs to him, he wraps him up in his arms, he clothes him, and he throws him a party. And Jesus paints that picture to show us his heart. This is the heart of God, the merciful heart of God to those people who repent. When a sinner, a terrible sinner, throws themselves upon God's mercy, as David does here, it's as though God runs to them in mercy. He doesn't keep his distance. He doesn't set up a kind of probationary period. He doesn't wait until they've proven themselves or, or they've paid their sin back, as if any of us could ever do that. He runs to them. He gathers them to himself in forgiveness and restoration. Do you believe that? Maybe you believe it in theory, but you struggle to believe it in practice. Maybe you believe it about everybody else except yourself. You know, when I've really fouled up, when I've, I've even managed to shock myself by how wicked I am, that's when I find out what I really think God is like. Do I believe him? 
when he tells me that he's gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love? Do I believe the great proof he's given as his son is sacrificed on the cross for me? If there's mercy for a man like David after what David did, there is mercy for you as well. It doesn't matter how evil the sin. It doesn't matter how long it's been hidden. If you will repent, there is mercy for you. So firstly, real repentance appeals to mercy. And secondly, real repentance admits to evil. It admits to evil. Verses 3 to 6. Do you see how frankly David describes what he's done there in verses 3 to 6? He, if you like, calls a spade a spade, calls a sin a sin. Verse 3, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse 4, I have, I've sinned, I've done what is evil in your sight. Transgression, sin, evil, iniquity. Now, compare that language with some of the mealy-mouthed apologies we sometimes hear or maybe even use. You know the kind of language? Mistakes were made. Uh, or it was an error of judgment. How often do we hear that? Just a sort of intellectual mistake I made, really. Just got it wrong. David says, no, I know it was evil. Real repentance faces up to the sheer wickedness of sin. Do you notice David doesn't offer a single excuse for what he did? He didn't say, well, you know, it was a particularly stressful time. You don't understand. We were fighting battles out on the front. I was really stressed or I was just really tired. Hadn't slept well. Bad run of sleepless nights. I was really tired. You don't understand the pressures of this job. You, tr- you, try, you try living in my shoes. You try wearing this crown. There's none of that. And did you notice, too, that he accepts that it really was him committing the evil? That's what's going on in verse 5, isn't it? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's not saying that there were sinful circumstances around his conception. He's saying he was sinful for the, from day one. Now, we say maybe sometimes, don't we, well, ah, that, it wasn't really me. I, I was acting out of character. It's not who I am. David says, no, that, that's, that was exactly who I am, I'm afraid. It's, it's been who I am since I was conceived. Wickedness runs right through me. It comes right from my deepest being. We don't like this idea very much. We find this hard, don't we? And, and we do a really good job of hiding our inner wickedness from other people. We learn how to be socially respectable. But every so often, something happens that knocks us and it exposes our sinful hearts. What's inside comes flowing out. Years ago, I used to go on a Christian camp in beautiful West Wales. I now go back as a as an adult, that's another story, but I went for years as a teenager. And some people, some people go on camps in boarding schools, and I, I just want to put it out there that they aren't really camps, right? You can come and fight me about that afterwards. Uh, for it to be a camp, you have to, there's a clue in the word, you have to camp, right? Uh, so, and my camp really was a camp. Uh, we slept under canvas. Uh, if it rained and your coat was touching the edge of the tent, the water came in and you woke up in a swimming pool, right? It was proper camping. Uh, there were no showers at that point. There are now, wonderfully. But there were no showers, so you can imagine what some of the teenage boys were like, myself included, by the end of the week. And the toilets, and I'm afraid we are talking about toilets now, the toilets were plastic buckets with mysterious blue chemicals in them. 
And those toilets would be emptied every morning after breakfast. But after a particularly heavy dinner, the toilets could become perilously full. As poor Phil discovered when partway through doing his business, he lost his balance and his very full plastic bucket fell over and the contents went everywhere. And I promise you, it was just as grim as it sounds. I mean, they were going in in hazmat suits to clear up the, the mess. I'm sorry about the, the illustration, but we managed to keep the lid on our sin most of the time, maybe in front of other people. And then something happens to knock us over and what was always in there just comes flowing out, and it really stinks. And we think to ourselves, is that really me? Is that really what I could be like? Is that really come out of me? Isn't that, isn't that just my tiredness? I'm just a bit stressed at the moment. No, that, that really is me. Well, that's what David's saying. He's saying, yeah, what happened with Bathsheba and Uriah was me, and I know it stinks. Awful. It was, it came out of my heart. He doesn't try to minimize the sin. He's not, He's not in the business here of reputation management. That's so often what's going on in apologies, public, public apologies. He doesn't offer any kind of mitigating excuse. He doesn't pretend, well, it's not really me. This is what real repentance is like. It calls evil, evil. And it knows that the real evil of sin is the offense that it causes God. You see how David puts it. He puts it very strongly there in verse 4. Against you, talking to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, you might read that and trip over it and think, well, that's not quite right, David, is it? Because you sinned against Bathsheba and you sinned very badly against Uriah, had him executed. And then, and then there's everybody else that you were supposed to be ruling and setting an example to in Israel. Now, look, David isn't denying that. He knows that full well. The sense of verse 4 here is that the one that he's ultimately offended is the Lord his God. Against you, against you primarily, you more than anyone else have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You, God of glory and majesty, you, God of such kindness and generosity to me, after everything that you've done for me, against you, you of all people have I sinned. And this surely is one of the big differences between repentance and what we might call mere remorse. Remorse can feel sorrow for all sorts of other reasons. We can feel really sorry that we've been found out or sorry that we've suffered reputational damage or sorry because we're disappointed with ourselves or because our sin has made our life harder. I don't think you have to be born again, do you, to experience that kind of remorse? Remorse is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 7 when he talks about a worldly sorrow that leads to death. They can cry and cry and cry without ever really being spirit-given repentance. There are all sorts of reasons we might cry over sin without really caring about the offense we've caused against our God. Real repentance grieves more than anything else the hurt that we've caused him. Against you have I sinned. In all of your glory and your goodness, after everything you've done for me, against you have I sinned. That's the kind of repentance that leads to life. And that's the repentance, thirdly, that asks for forgiveness. Verses 7 to 12, although he actually is doing it all the way through the psalm, but 
He asks for forgiveness. Real repentance asks for forgiveness. And the point here is very simple. On the basis of God's mercy and admitting that he's a sinner, it's him that's done it, David simply asks God to forgive him. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The, the priests used to use hyssop plants for purification rites. They'd dip the plant in blood or water and then, and then daub or flick onto the thing being ceremonially cleaned. And David is asking God to do that for him, to make him, he says here, whiter than snow. We're getting a kind of a light frosting on the ground, enough to make you walk carefully, aren't we, at the moment? But we've, we've had much uh, heavier snowfall in the past. We've had enough snow on the ground. I remember not so long ago a snowball fight happening out in Richmond Green after church on a Sunday. Beautiful sight, isn't it? But that layer of thick snow in the morning after a, a night of snowfall. Brilliant white. David's saying here, Lord, you can make me like that. Every part of me, you can make me whiter than snow within My heart is black with sin, but you can make me clean. And maybe we read this and we think, it sounds much too simple. It can't surely be right that David can do what he's done in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 and then simply ask God's forgiveness and receive it just like that, free of charge. And we suspect maybe that it can't be that easy for us either. I I must have to go through a certain number of um, ask a certain number of times or in a very particular sort of magic formula-like way or, or I need to go through a series of rituals or, or build up my credit again by church attendance, go through that probationary period before God will give me a pardon, go through regular prayer, whatever it is. How can it be so simple? How can a sinner like David, who's done what David has done, simply ask and receive God's forgiveness for free? And of course, the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? It's Jesus Keep a finger in Psalm 51 and flick with you to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4. Paul is persuading his readers here in Romans that, that when they put their trust in the Lord Jesus, God really will simply put their sin away. No building up of merit required, no working off the guilt through a series of rituals or law-abiding performances or whatever, simply trusting in Jesus for full forgiveness. And notice what example Paul picks up on there in Romans 4. Look at verse 6. Who is it? It's our friend David. Verse 6. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. That is, the one God declares to be forgiven and righteous regardless of their performance. And so verse 7, here's the quote from David. Something David had written a long time before. Blessed, he says, are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It's a quote from Psalm 32, another psalm actually we could have spent this evening on. And David in Psalm 32 is giving us a personal testimony. He's talking about himself. So Romans 4 here is confirming that when David said sorry, God really did cover off his sin. He he put it away. He really did just forgive him. Simple as that. And how can that be right? How can God be just and put David's sin away without punishment? The answer is in Romans 3. Would you have a look at down chapter 3, Romans 3 and verse 23? Have a look with me. Verse 23. Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we've all done a David in our hearts. That's the point there. Yeah. 
and are justified, that is, declared by God to be righteous, by His grace as a gift, a free gift. How? Verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And this is what God is saying to us through the Apostle Paul. He's saying, yes, sin is evil, and yes, we've all sinned. But for all who'll trust in Him, God has given up His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross, so that by punishing the Lord Jesus, God instead could forgive people like us. Jesus was offered as a propitiation. Do you see that word there in verse 25? He was put forward as a propitiation. What's that about? Well, a sacrifice of propitiation is something that draws away wrath. Now think of the, the lightning conductor on a house. What does it do? It, it draws the lightning onto itself and down into the ground and so diverts the lightning away from the house and the damage it could do. That's the Lord Jesus on the cross. He's drawing, he drew the lightning bolt of God's wrath and justice on himself so that when sinners like us say sorry to God, God could simply forgive them for free. And we could say that it really is that easy for us and for David because it really was that difficult and costly for the Lord Jesus Christ. It costs us nothing because it cost him everything. For those who put their trust in Jesus, justice has already been satisfied. As Paul will later say in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus died, it really is as simple as Psalm 51. Simply ask for forgiveness and he will wash you clean. Have you done that? If you're here exploring Christianity, trying to put the pieces together, do you realize how simple it really is? There's no ladder here to climb. There's no portfolio to build up so that you'll somehow persuade God that you should pass into heaven when you die. Simply ask God to forgive you. That's it. Ask him to forgive you and he will. Fourthly and finally, real repentance aims for change. Verses 13 to the end. It aims for change. You know, one, one sure sign that I really have repented of my sin is that I really do want to be different in the future. You see that in the psalm as David thinks about his future. He, he knows he's going to need God's help if he's going to change. Verse 10, he'll need a new heart, a clean heart. He'll need a right spirit from God. He'll need the help of the Holy Spirit, verse 11. He knows he can't do this on his own, so this isn't just David saying, right, from now on it's going to be a white-knuckle ride and I'm going to hold on with all my strength. He needs God's help if he's going to change, but he is determined to change. And notice at the level of his heart, what sort of change does God want from David? Does he want a string of sacrifices offered on the altar? No, verse 16. You will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. The point isn't here that God hates sacrifices as such. They were God's idea, weren't they? The point here is that mere sacrifices, religious rituals, religious ceremonies, whatever they are, sacrifices without a changed heart are useless. And today, 
attending church or saying your prayers or giving away your money means very little apart from a changed heart or, or as David puts it here, verse 17, a broken and contrite heart, a humble heart. A heart that with, with God's help longs to obey God. A heart that hates anything that offends him. We sometimes think that being broken-hearted is a bad thing. We want to jump out of that state as quickly as we possibly can. We'll look for ways of making ourselves feel better. But, you know, when it comes to our sin, David's telling us here, being broken-hearted is the best thing. If you're feeling broken-hearted about the ways that you've let God down in the past, you're in a good place. It might not feel good. It is good. This is the heart the Lord is looking for. Not proud, but humble. Not hard, but soft. Not casual about sin, but serious. Not claiming to be in the right. Not offering excuse after excuse. Knowing that you're in the wrong. And trusting in his mercy and help to change. And you know, when that happens in a person, when they really do repent of their sin with God's help, that desire to change then flows out to other people Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David wants others to find the joy of forgiveness and the joy of obedience to God too. Not in a proud, holier-than-thou way. David has nothing to boast in. But just as one struggler helping another. Coming alongside someone else and walking with them praying with them in their area of struggle. Maybe sometimes lovingly challenging them. We, th we thought about that last week, being a Nathan or having a Nathan in our life too. It's putting our arm around someone and saying, listen, I'm a sinner too. Let's walk this path together. Let me help you. We're not going to be perfect until death or until Jesus comes, not in practice, we'll be perfect, perfectly clothed in Christ's righteousness, but we're not going to live perfectly, are we, until death or Christ comes, but we can grow in holiness. God does help us in this, and we can help each other too. We can be one of the means that God uses to help each other to change and to grow. Real repentance aims for change. Well, this psalm is for all of us, isn't it? Because, as we said, all of us are like David. We share in his sinfulness, but we can all also share in his joy at God's full and free forgiveness. There is a God of mercy waiting to hear from you, to admit your sin, to ask for forgiveness, and to ask for help to change. Let's be a repenting church. Let's take God seriously, let's take sin seriously, and let's seriously rejoice in the forgiveness we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment in the silence to pray. Talking to God is always the right thing to do, isn't it? And Psalm 51 may give you the words to say. We've said already these aren't magic words, but they give you a, a sense of what repentance looks like. Maybe you want to say some of these in the silence to God. And then I'll lead us in a prayer together.
Let's pray together. You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, the, for your kindness in showing us that deeply and desperately sinful people can be fully forgiven. Thank you that the examples you give us in the Bible aren't what we might consider to be tame sinners. Father, we thank you that even though David's sin was awful, you forgave him. Thank you that you offer us full and free forgiveness because of the death and sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. 